OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We are currently running winter lunchtime on-site sessions discussing the superficial and ortho-voltage treatment portfolio that we distribute for WOMED, owned by Baybig. This comprehensive KV unit portfolio ranges from energies of 50 to 300 KV with excellent patient and staff safety features and we offer an incredible service and support package for your engineering team to ensure a smooth and efficient service for your patients. Please do get in touch if you require further information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensys as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 72. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Naman Joker Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Captain Ken Errington, who talked about his career in the army and navigating a cancer diagnosis. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest today, Holly Roberts. She's going to be discussing Larson's Pride Charity and the incredible work that they do supporting young children with brain tumours along with their families. So welcome, Holly, to Rad Chat. Lovely to have you on. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, an absolute pleasure. I have followed along with the charity on Instagram um, probably since you started, actually, and I was just absolutely drawn um, to your Instagram page. Um, it's amazing the work that you're doing. Um, so thank you. No, no, thank you. And it's it's the same. It's a mutual thing. We've been following some of the work that you do to inspire our charity work, actually. Thank you. So, Holly, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name's Holly Roberts. I'm the Chair of Trustees for Larson's Pride. I'm also Larson's mum. Um, the charity was named after my son um, in his memory. He died from brain tumour in 2019. Um We've spent a lot of time working with other charities and advocating for children with brain tumours since then. Um, but it was about 12 months ago now that we decided to go ahead and found our own charity um, with the simplest, but I think the noblest of aims, which is to improve the lives of children with brain tumours. What does a normal day look like for you? So I'm still working full time in my job as teaching and learning manager, but I'm finding more and more that that's kind of creeping in on the work that we might be doing as a charity. So we're currently, um, every day I finish work, come home, sort tea and things out, and then we're developing resources. So at the moment, I'm working with another trustee who is a play specialist at UCLH, um, working at the moment in PBT, actually. 
um, and we're looking to uh, develop some CPD resources for therapeutic radiographers to help them take some play strategies into their work. Um, we are working on an animation, which is really exciting and creative. We're doing lots of different bits of work, but it kind of gets squeezed in at weekends and evenings and, and whenever our very passionate trustees can, can have a go. We feel you on, on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's heavy going. <laughs> can I ask, colleagues? So you said chair of trustees. Just for anyone who doesn't understand how charities work or who is a trustee. Yeah, absolutely. So um, charities are non-profits, so we're not a business, um, but they need to be governed by a board of people who can make sure that all the work that is done, all the money that is fundraised is in the best interests and in, the, in line with the aims of the charity and what they want to do. So we have got think six or seven trustees I should know that shouldn't I um, who take on different roles so we get inspiration like I said from our play specialist Claire we have um, a pediatric doctor on our board but we also have you know some of my friends who've been with me throughout Larson's treatment journey and diagnosis um, a lawyer a marketing manager people who can bring all these things to try and help make our charity work not as employees but just as people who really care why did you start Larson's Pride? Oh, for a number of reasons, actually. So Larson, um, Larson died at Christmas in 2019. So it's been a few years since then. And immediately we wanted to do things in his memory. We advocated with brain tumour research for better research and better and kinder treatments for children with brain tumours. I've done... Um, a lot with Click Sergeant, well, they're now Young Lives Versus Cancer. Um, and Larson wanted to be a zookeeper and he loved animals. And we've done things with animal charities as well. And I think maybe it's it's taken a process of working with those other charities and doing things with them over the last few years that led me to kind of really know what I wanted to do in his memory. Um, and, and that thing, I think, is to work with and to, and I've said this already, but improve the lives of children with brain tumours right now. You know, it, it's not a, for argument, really, whether treatment needs to improve. Um, the, you know, the high-dose chemotherapy and the surgery that these children go through alongside the radiotherapy, which is the least invasive part of their treatment, you know, it's horrific. Um but that is going to take time and there are charities doing that already and you know working really hard and I will always advocate for that and I will always campaign for these things um but our charity it's to help children right now so children under the age of 12 who are going through this treatment what can we do to um, improve that process for them but with this you know awful kind of fact in our heads that prognosis for children with brain tumors is dire i think it's around 12 percent of children um survive more than five years it's it's horrible and so the combination of that statistic with the awful treatments that they face that's what we want to bridge you know how can i give them some childhood back how can we cancel out this idea that they need to be resilient um i don't want them to have to be resilient i want them to be able to be children during their treatment and that's what our charity stands for so that's why i started it i wanted to be able to do something now to that would impact on children now and that would give them their life while they had it you know and hopefully going forwards as well but so honestly it's amazing the work that you're doing and, and the passion behind it um can you tell us about larson um yes so Larson um, was my oldest child, so my firstborn, and um, 
he absolutely loved animals. In particular, he loved big cats. He wanted to be a big cat keeper. I was I remember trying to tell him that he, maybe he wanted to be a vet rather than a zookeeper, but he was adamant he just wanted to be a zookeeper. That was his understanding of being able to look after them. Um and he was really really clever. Um he loved the idea of school. He loved reading and writing. In fact, I think it was when he was 3 years old. Um I remember on New Year's Day explaining to him what a New Year's resolution was and this three-year-old turns around to me and says oh I want to be able to read and write that's what I want to do this year and I was like okay okay then and I was, I was so proud I had this really proud parent moment I was like hold on I'm going to get my camera out and film you saying that so I can show everybody else that my three-year-old wants to learn to read and write as their New Year's resolution and I um I said okay got the camera out filmed him again Larson what, what what's your New Year's resolution and and he said something like um I want to hold an owl and I would like to stroke a camel and it completely changed <laughs> so I never got that on <laughs> on camera <laughs> um, but I do have the owl and the camel <laughs> resolutions um but that year he started you know he was three he started to learn to read and write and he really got into it and nursery really supportive and that's how we realized actually that he had a brain tumor and we went through a lot of misdiagnosis but I remember one day the nursery saying to me that he um, wasn't so interested in doing any reading or writing today and he'd kind of said no to things and, and it didn't make sense. Um, and from that point, we kind of spent six months going through this process of being told he had a lazy eye or he needed glasses, fighting to get an appointment at the hospital um, to try and get this diagnosis. It just didn't feel quite right. Um, so just before he was four in the September, he had... Um, a CT scan they couldn't get him in for an MRI over the bank holiday and it showed this this tumor on his optic nerve um and it was the most devastating news that you could ever possibly deliver to a parent we were I mean I couldn't process it and then we had this couple of weeks where the the oncologist said to us and the neurosurgeon said well actually it looks like an optic pathway glioma this is a benign tumor they normally burn themselves out it's not going to grow too much we're not even going to treat him we're just going to watch and wait you know let's just see how this goes so you start reassuring yourself um and we did we did the watchful waiting we gave it three months he had another scan and at this point near christmas now um he his tumour had grown considerably, travelling down the optic nerve, and they wanted to start chemotherapy on a really low dose uh, to try and slow it down. And we then went through another six months of chemotherapy not working um, before they agreed to do a biopsy. Um, but by the time they did a biopsy, you know, everything was kind of just slightly getting out of control. And it wasn't until the May that year, so he was four and a half by this point, that they were able to uh, diagnose him with such a rare brain tumour I think that there were less than 10 researched cases of this tumour, you know, globally. Um, so they didn't really know what to do, how to treat it, whether they could remove it. Um, he ended up having surgery to remove his whole right eye as well as the optic nerve, um, which is just the most awful disfiguring you know the fear that you have with this the neurosurgeon said that there'd be 75 percent he'd wake up blind after this surgery that they didn't know if they could get the tumor out you know what would happen 
um, you know, and all the other risks that parents are told all the time, you know, he might have a stroke, this, you know, whatever else might happen, he could be paralysed when he wakes up because of the position of the tumour. Um, and I had to translate that to last. And I had, you know, you can't let your child go in for surgery when they're five and, you know, they've got, they understand that they're alive. Um, you know, by the way, you might wake up blind. And I just remember Larson saying to me, stop, I don't want to talk about that. And and I had to respect that. And he, but he knew that he needed his lump taking out and he went in. And that, I think for me, was just, that was the most agonising moment. Um, but yeah, getting back to Larson, he was beautiful. He was, you know, the most perfect child, the most well-behaved. He was gentle. He was kind, you know, um, he was he should never have had to go through the treatment that he went through he shouldn't have had to go through that he shouldn't have had to do any of it um but i suppose the bit that i've missed out here and the reason i'm here today is that that surgery at the point was relatively successful and he had a few um, issues after that but he got sent home from hospital finally at the end of the summer holidays ready to start school um and he had to start school the same week that he had to start uh, six weeks of radiotherapy. And in all the time that's passed since then, since found and founding the charity, um, it was that part of our journey that stood out to us. This It was this moment where the therapeutic radiographers, the kind of clinical oncologist who worked with us, the play specialists, everyone who came together as that part of the journey meant that he could start school. They allowed him to start school. They worked together as a team and they worked with him as a child to give him this bit of a journey that felt like he was a normal child again. He got to go and make friends. He got to, you know, even just the timetabling of when he went into the centre to have his treatment that was agreed that every day would be 4 or 4.30 meant that he got to go to school every day. And I just, it was that. On reflection, it was the joy that he managed to get and the real life experience that he got at that time that made me think, do you know what? The first thing we're going to do, it's going to be to ensure that other children get the most positive experience out of radiotherapy as well, because that's possible, because it's not invasive and it can be the better part of the journey. Wow. That's, yeah, you speak so fondly of Larson and he sounds like he would have been great fun. I suppose before you knew about the radiotherapy side of things, did you know much about radiotherapy? No. Do you know what? I didn't know anything about radiotherapy and when he was diagnosed with a brain tumour um, I knew that he would probably need brain surgery and I knew that I mean I was devastated by the idea that he'd have chemotherapy it terrified me um, and then they said oh and maybe with radiotherapy as well no I didn't really know what it was um, I had an idea of the machinery I certainly didn't know about the masks you know I didn't know about having to be clipped down to a bed and there you know all the things that you learn I suppose once you're on that journey um so no absolutely no idea of it about it but now I'm so passionate about the the experience that children have during that part of their treatment and I'm presuming because of his age he was under general anaesthetic no Larson wasn't under general anaesthetic and um and I think this is where um, I get really passionate about radiotherapy. When Larson um, needed to start his radiotherapy, um, he, it was assumed by his oncologists that he would need a general anaesthetic because he was he was four. He'd be five in the September, so just as it started. Um, and I think as a parent, I'd got to the point where I've been in hospital long enough now that when I thought it was a no, it was really a no. So I kind of said, 
oh no, <laughs> no, Larson won't be having a general anaesthetic every single day for six six weeks. Um, and the consultant said, oh, well, I think he'll need it. <laughs> he has to lie very still. You know, it can be quite claustrophobic in the mask. Um, and I said, but he's starting school. You know, and again, my understanding of how awful surgery was, how awful chemo could be, I was thinking, no, hang on a second. There's absolutely no reason. There's no needles. This isn't going to hurt him. He can do it awake. Um, but like I said earlier, he had already been through quite a lot of growth in terms of his reasoning and his maturity. He'd had to understand that he might go blind in surgery and things like that. So I was able to take this to Larson and say, look, you can start school. Um, but the best way for you to be able to do that is to do it without a general anaesthetic to be able to lie still. I um, and he said okay. He didn't he didn't question it. It's not fun for children to have general anaesthetics, whether it's done by the mask. Not fun. Not fun for the parents pinning them down. It's not fun to have to have a cannula in. You know these are small invasive procedures that they don't like. Um, so we worked really hard over the course of a few days you know maybe a week at the most but this was starting soon there wasn't loads of time for preparation with his play specialist to lie really still in his bed and um, we had a mask that didn't fit him the play specialist had had one made to fit her face but we'd kind of place it on him and we'd have timers on our phones um, or we'd play a certain number of songs so he loved the lion king because it was big cats um, so we'd play some Disney songs for him um, and we just practiced and he did it and he was fine. He, you know, I think he had the cognition to understand why. Um, so we went back to the oncologists again and they said, do you know what, if you can go in and, and you can have the mask made awake, then we'll agree to it and we'll, we'll let him do it. So we went in and, and he did the mask and he listened to some songs um, and and so we managed to persuade them and prove it to them within this very short time space. Um, and yeah, it wasn't very nice, you know, being clipped down to a bed. And I think I remember a couple of days where he would kind of be a bit frustrated. Uh, but there were lots of other things that we could do. And, and this is why it's so exciting, you know, to be able to talk to you about the role of the therapeutic radiographer in, teach, in treating paediatric patients, because they had so much stuff set up. And we would play songs for him and he'd choose it. They had a CD player, but treatment centers have different things. We'd put his songs on. Um, I would be able to stand in the control room where they had a microphone and a speaker so I could talk to him. Um, they had sticker charts. They helped him with his beads of courage. The whole experience was these members of staff were not paediatric trained. Was They were there for him. They wanted this to work. They believed in him. And and I think that other therapeutic radiographers can believe in other children the way that these did for Larson and, and ensure they have a similar experience. It sounds amazing. And it obviously highlights how important it is to have the parents involved in that decision making and and more importantly the child to kind of know what the consequences are and with Larson wanting to go to school I suppose he knew what the goal was was to kind of keep still was there anything specific that Larson loved about going for radiotherapy which in itself sounds weird to say because who loves going for treatment but it sounds like it was a not as harsh as maybe going for chemotherapy and 
the fact that he did get to do some nice things whilst he was having a treatment for cancer. Yeah, do you know, absolutely. They, um, we, we actually lived really close to the radiotherapy centre, which, you know, was, was lucky. You know, some people travel a long way to, you know, these, especially for paediatrics when they're regionalised, they travel a long way. But we were so lucky in that Larson could actually get his, we'd drive home and he'd get a scooter and he'd scoot across to radiotherapy. But they'd let him scoot into the reception desk to sign in. Then he'd scoot down the corridor to, to the playroom, park it up um, and, and go into the treatment room. So he loved being able to scoot in. Um, the some of the therapeutic radiographers at Nottingham I just are brilliant and they paint the children's masks you know that's not part of your job but they're doing it for them they painted a cheetah on Larson's mask and he absolutely loved it um they printed a sticker chart off and again it was all big cats I think he felt special there he felt really well looked after there wasn't a single member of staff who didn't kind of go out of their way to give him high five on the way in and talk to him and and it's not invasive, so it doesn't hurt. You know, this is a really big thing for children. Yes, he had to lie still, but actually he he was kind of the star of the show for that part of his treatment. There's quite a few members of staff around. And, and I think he enjoyed that really positive attention. And he enjoyed the fact that he was doing something he knew he had to do, but it didn't feel like that. It just ended up feeling like part of our daily routine and getting to know the people who treated him. Um, it was that it felt like they were all there for him and I think that's how he felt quite often I don't know how it is for you Numan but um in clinical therapeutic radiographers often fight over treating pediatric patients because it's just it is a special time and it's challenging and especially if you've got parents who are really anxious as you would expect um it, it can be really challenging. And even from our perspective in clinical, you know, having a child go through general anaesthetic, it adds a lot in terms of the preparation, the processes, you know, the fact that you've got a much larger multidisciplinary team having to work together. It is much more challenging from that perspective. So being able to have a child who can lay still and be able to have the treatment without general anaesthetic is is the ideal solution for everyone. Um, but obviously we are still treating within millimetres. So, you know, it is obviously imperative from that perspective. Um, did you find that you got the support you needed whilst Larson was going through radiotherapy? Oh, do you know, that's a really interesting question because there was a fight for him to be able to access radiotherapy awake. Um, but once we proved it and once Larson was able to access awake radiotherapy, the team who then came in to look after us managed that. Everyone became on board with the idea that Larson would do this awake. There was no one questioning it after that point. And that's all I needed, I think. Um, one of the things that we'd like to do as a charity is raise awareness for parents of the questions that they can ask to therapeutic radiographers. I suppose the one thing when I've reflected on this was that maybe I held on to some questions thinking, well, I need to speak to the consultant about that, or this is a question for, you know, this person who I'm used to seeing from, you know, earlier on in our journey, or the person who's leading Larson's care. I think it'd be really brilliant if parents um, felt more confident to ask therapeutic radiographers about some of the questions that you absolutely can ask them about um, whether that's about things that you've covered previously like skin care you know Larson's eye got a bit sore um, 
and how to kind of look after or treat that. Um, some of the other side effects or things that you might have noticed and asking whether that is because of the radiotherapy treatment. Um, and I think sometimes that's, that was a bit vague and I wasn't sure, you know, can I ask them or are they, you know, do I sound silly because I don't know if that's their job or not. Um, that bit I think I wasn't sure about, but it's something that would be so simple, you know, maybe with some resources or, you know, small campaigns that we could um, display in treatment centres for parents to say, do you know what, you can ask me this or you can do, you know, you can ask me that. Um, so really it was just that but I felt wholly supported I felt like once the decision had been made everybody was on board and everyone was there for Larson to make sure he could do this in a way that he wanted um, like I said I remember them moving other people's treatment to make sure Larson could go in at the four o'clock slot so that he could go to school and um, yeah we felt looked after during that part of his treatment it sounds very personalized which is really nice to hear what was the support like once treatment had finished so you know, follow-ups aren't always straight away. We normally like to see any age of patients a few weeks afterwards once the side effects have settled. What was it like for all of you? So Larson didn't really experience any side effects from radiotherapy, apart from a bit of a sore patch on his skin. And I guess I, I fully understand that this is my very personal experience and there is a wider experience and families have children in very different positions who might be a lot more poorly when they go in for radiotherapy. Um and who have more side effects than Larson did. Um, so I, I totally understand that's kind of different for lots of people. For us, the radiotherapy happened um, in a strange order because it had taken so long for him to be diagnosed, to have his surgery. Um, and the diagnosis in the end was so much worse than the original diagnosis. So for us, there wasn't a follow-up. When Larson finished radiotherapy in October half term, he died less than two months later, about six or seven weeks after that, because a week after finishing radiotherapy, he um, had results from an MRI scan that showed that his tumour had grown back on uh, the top of his spine. Um, and we were told there was nothing we could do, but we'd have a go at this uh, high-dose chemotherapy. Um, and Larson died from the side effects of the high dose chemotherapy. And I suppose this makes me even more passionate about radiotherapy because of the horror of chemotherapy on children and their young bodies. And I fully appreciate that radiotherapy might affect or will affect how children grow and develop. But when prognosis is so bad, radiotherapy can buy them time, give them time while they're being treated. Um, and it's not killing them in the while they're having the treatment. You know, chemotherapy, I had to give chemotherapy go. We, you can't say no to it. You have to do the thing that might save your child's life. Um, but it was the chemotherapy drugs that killed Larson before the brain tumour did. So to answer your question, there was no follow up with radiotherapy. But what it what radiotherapy did was it gave him six weeks of absolutely normal life um, and and it worked. So the radiotherapy that he had was, um, I don't know the terminology, but to the very specific area. Had he had the head and spine radiotherapy, you know, maybe we would be in a different position today. I don't know. Um, but there was absolutely no sign of the evidence of the tumour where the radiotherapy had treated him. Can I ask, Ollie, it's, it, it's a question you may not want to answer, but did you ever talk to Larson about dying? Did Was it something that you had processed yourself? It's 
I reflect on this quite a lot and as a parent or in my experience you know it's there but you're trying to tell yourself that this absolutely cannot happen and if you have children I suppose immediately you know you're responsible for that child staying alive you know that is your job from when they are a newborn baby you know that's what you do so there is this element that you think you can control the outcome because you are the parent and you will keep your child alive and you will do everything that you can but um yeah you absolutely question it and you wonder about these things when he had surgery and he was in surgery for 12 hours I'm thinking you know I thought he died at the end when the nurse came to get me I thought she was coming to tell me that he had died so I certainly have moments of that and then while you're in treatment you think do you know what we're doing something this is action we are trying to save him here we're going to sort this out I actually think that I was in the fortunate position where I didn't have to have a conversation where Larson said am I going to die and I don't think I could have lied to him but I did have conversations where Larson might just say to me I don't want to die um and and maybe at times where I thought that might not be the case you know and I'd say my goodness nobody wants to die you know that's why we're going to the doctors that's why you're going to have this medicine that's why we're going to do this with no definites um had gosh, is there a positive to the fact that Larson died because of the chemotherapy? Do you know what? It prevented him getting to a stage with the disease where I would have to explain why he could no longer walk or why he could no longer speak. I am very grateful, actually, that I didn't have to witness that if that was where this was going to go. Um, I don't want to believe that it was where it was going, but I didn't have to see that and Larson didn't have to ask me that question and I didn't have to explain it to him. But I do know that many other parents have to have these conversations with their children. Um, and I can't, I can't even imagine it as a, as how you navigate that. Yeah, it's very challenging. And I suppose it's something that once, I don't know, sometimes I think from my experience of speaking to parents who have that, you know, their younger children have been with us that they might have processed some of that grief a lot sooner because they're able to comprehend what's going on. And I think you've explained that you've actually involved Larson at every stage, which, as exactly as you said, lots of parents don't feel brave enough to do that because they want to protect them. But I think that's, that is great to hear because actually, yeah, he knew everything that was happening. He knew what might happen, but to an extent where he still felt comfortable within himself just to be himself, which is great. Lots of parents that I've spoken to will not tell their kids anything. I think we've had a few people on the podcast as well who've echoed that experience that although they've survived childhood cancers, they wish they'd known or had some choice at the start, Or, but she had thyroid cancer, but she wasn't told that she'd get any support while she was in the radiation-proof bunker having thyroid treatment. And that psychologically still she's struggling with as an 18-year-old, but I just want to say that it's really positive that you did involve him at every stage, and it sounds like he was a very happy person all the time anyway, and you echo that, I think, now as well. Yeah. No, he was. He um, he was, and he responded really well to having the information. You know, we used the vocabulary that we break it down. I didn't say cancer to him. I said he had a lump. I really found it hard to process that. Um, in fact, we're having a conversation as charity at the moment 
whether we change the terminology for the title of our charity uh, for the aims of our charity and say that we want to improve the lives of children with brain cancer instead of brain tumors because there is some debate on whether the tumor actually softens it to the extent that people don't worry so much that it almost sounds benign talking about a brain tumor i'm not i'm not sure whether that's right or wrong but it's a conversation that we're having I would not have been able to say that Larson had brain cancer, even when he had his final thing. I couldn't say it to myself. And it's such an evocative word, isn't it? But we did talk about his lump and he did know that was growing there and it shouldn't be growing where it was. And, you know, so you manage them, don't you, with your child and the vocabulary that you have and that you know that they will understand because you you know them so well. Um, and I suppose one thing that this journey does for parents and their children is I think there was something symbiotic about it you know you are in you are living this journey together as much as he had to experience all of the horrors of treatment you know as a parent witnessing that you are kind of in it together um, and so you have to communicate it I suppose you've touched on a bit around bereavement Holly um what support was there around bereavement and I know everyone makes their own support network at the same time um, but what, what did you have access to? I don't feel as though I had access to enough support in bereavement. Um, Larson's death was extremely traumatic. He had um, he was in having his chemotherapy treatment, which was definitely having really awful effects on his body. So he he was on the ward, um, and his he his body couldn't maintain platelets and they weren't able to give him enough um transfusions to to support that so he had a bleed on his brain which sent him into seizure which meant that we had um the critical care outreach team come to try and revive Larson whilst we sat there not knowing that this what was happening or understanding what was happening and he um was taken onto life support um in the children's critical care unit at Nottingham where we were told that he wouldn't be waking up from this that he was on breathing equipment to keep him alive and we asked um how long can he stay like that my husband was um determined that Larson's body wouldn't go through any more seizures and so um we didn't want him to face that they said that you've maybe got 24 hours when we were in Nottingham we didn't live near any of our family so we then had to kind of call all of our family to come to Nottingham and come and say goodbye to him. Um, so I get upset, but I want to tell this part of the story. The the bereavement care that we got from the nurses while Larson was on life support was some of the best care I've ever had, you know, from anyone in my life. Um, but ultimately, once you turn that life support machine off um you do not have a place in the hospital anymore you were there with your child so you walk out of there and apart from maybe to come back and see their body before it goes to a funeral home you don't belong there anymore but you have lived there through this treatment you've you know any parent with a child with cancer will have been in that hospital so many times these people become your family the nurses are your family um, I felt very cut off straight away and I'm, and these nurses have other things to do and it's certainly not against them but I didn't feel like I knew the child bereavement team at the hospital because you don't meet them until your child dies they haven't been looking after you and I I and this is on me I wasn't comfortable to kind of 
take that support at the time. Um, but if you don't take that support, what you quickly realise is there isn't much else in the world waiting for you. Um, I We cut ourselves off quite a lot. My family support was great because they looked after Larson's younger brother, Jesse, a lot for us. I didn't want to see anyone. I couldn't. I, I just couldn't be around anybody. And then maybe when I was getting to the point that I could have accessed some bereavement support, um, COVID happened. And all of a sudden we were locked in our house and, and I was just maybe getting to that bit where I was going to reach out. We'd um, There was also Maggie's centre opposite our house next door to the treatment centre in Nottingham. And I think we'd been in there once just to talk to their amazing um, lead. And, um, and then it was COVID. And so, yeah, it's taken us a really long time to process some of those things. And we've, we've done a lot of um, managing our grief on our own, which was partly choice, partly COVID. Um, bereavement support for, for parents in this country needs to be improved. And particularly in cases like ours where we hadn't gone through the hospice process, you know, we hadn't met those people yet because we didn't think he was about to die in that moment. Um, there's Yeah, there's a lot to be done. Oh, thank you for sharing, Holly. And it is, I'm sure for anyone listening, I hope no one's driving because... Uh, I'm sure people will shed a tear listening to that. But um, I think it's imperative that things are done and supported for parents who are having to go through that, especially when it wasn't maybe anticipated um, and you hadn't prepared for it. I know what you said earlier about, you know, some parents will have to go through that process and um, starting to grieve earlier, but you definitely didn't get to that stage and didn't have that time to go into that let alone then access any resources is there is there anything in terms of kind of the resources and things that would have helped and supported you is there anything specific that you think might have helped it's very hard to say because I also appreciate the the roles of all the people that I felt like I needed to be close to and their roles were to look after children who were going through treatment um nurses came to Larson's funeral um, the play specialist came to Larson's funeral you know staff came there and they showed that they were thinking of us I stay in contact with them now um, you know every year on the anniversary of him dying we send a kind of care package to the nurses every year on the date that Larson um, finished radiotherapy we send stuff to um, Nottingham Treatment Centre to say do you know what thank you this was a really positive part of our experience so whilst, no, I don't think they could have done any more for us, what I am very grateful for is that they've, considered, they've continued um, to allow me to show my gratitude. Um, we'll always hear back from them. We'll always have a message to say, you know, thank you for the cupcakes or thank you for this. And, and I suppose it's that continuation that has meant a lot, you know, whatever it is and... Um, that's meant a lot to me, I suppose. But no, I don't think there's anything else that they could have done. And if I'd been introduced to the bereavement team when I didn't think Larson was dying in the near future, that wouldn't have been right either. So this certainly isn't a kind of criticism of what I went through, but it's just awful. You know, there is actually no preparation for it, I suppose, in that sense. What about as a family? So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you've also got another child you're grieving massively I can't imagine how you'd 
cope with your own grief, let alone obviously having to help and support others in the family. Yeah, it was um, it was really hard. I, so Larson's little brother Jesse was two and a half when he died, and um, he was the reason I had to get up in the morning and to keep going. But I was very, very tired, so I was really grateful to my family when they might have Jesse. You know, they'd take him for a weekend, and actually, it's really sad, but Jesse was used to that from, from maybe one and a half years old. He might go to my family, who lived quite a distance away, not not how I would ever have wanted this to be, because I needed to be in hospital with Larson, you know, or we needed to be looking after him, and we had to make those decisions early on. Um, Jesse was a major worry for me. I felt like this was an adverse childhood experience and that he would be traumatized for the rest of his life and he would never recover from it and you know it haunts me now I would still worry about that um and then Jesse would do things like we'd be in the supermarket and he'd be in a trolley just shouting Larson's dead at the top of his voice um in a very happy tone not sad because he was trying to process what had happened and when we were trying to use the right words and say that he died. So Jesse would make songs singing, Larson died, Larson died. He'd do it if we went to a cafe or a supermarket and <laughs> trying to manage that when you're like, this is a really sad thing that you're saying but you don't understand. Um, is impossible, but it almost brings this impossible humour to it where you think, oh God, you're two and a half. Thank goodness you are here to bring me back to reality of like, you know, focusing on you and, and getting you through this. Um, you know, we made sure Jesse had went to therapy. He had some play therapy straight away. We we had read this brilliant book um, called The Invisible String. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, and it's a book where some children are scared of the thunder and they're nervous and they don't want to be away from their mums. So they get up and come and find her and she says, you and I, we're always attached by this invisible string because we love each other. And then they talk about the string and how it reaches everyone they love and it reaches across the world and it reaches to their granddad who's died. So um, I read this book to Jesse and I thought it was a bit above him at the time and a bit beyond him. Um but we're now, how old's Jesse? So Jesse's five now, so it's like three years later. If Jesse turns around to me now and says that he misses Larson, I'll say, should we give our strings a little pull? And he'll he'll pull on this invisible string and he'll say, I love you, Gaga, which is how he would have said Larson at the time. Um, and so we have this like continuation of that. And so I reflect on the time that we had together after Larson had died. And it brought us back together when Jesse had had to be in a, to be away from us lots and it's given us coping mechanisms that we still use now like our string and we'll, we'll we'll pull this string together so it was both really really hard um and really really needed for us that we had jesse to kind of get us through that time in our life wow um trying to hold my own tears back <clears throat> just get the lump out of my throat and talk um thank you for sharing that's a lot to process i mean even just for you and your family but I suppose for our listeners, this is just a fraction of what people go through on a daily basis. So however old people are, I mean, people always forget that it's not always just the person going through treatment. There is a whole support network, like people, everyone outside who also go through that exact same grief process and at different times. Because as you said, Jesse was quite young and he's probably still going to be processing well into his teenage years. And I'm sure when he's older and when he gets married, you'll remind him that he used to sing that song about his brother. <laughs> because... It, at these sort of things, I mean, I've had family bereavement, nothing like this, but you still have to have 
remember the the good times and the funny bits and things to help remind you that those dark moments they came but yeah you have to move forward and I suppose with the memory of last and now that's where the charity and what, what you're doing really embodies that and it's amazing like uh, yeah and that invisible string thing I think I'm going to use that forever as well because that really hit me in the feels. Holly, I know um, one of the questions we were going to ask you was about being a, a bystander to Larson. Um, can you talk us through that? Because I know, I know, kind of that whole terminology is something you don't agree with. Yeah, I. Um, how do I feel about it? I feel like yeah, we absolutely cannot use the term bystander for um, parents um, of children with cancer um, because you love your child you love them more than life itself and when you have a child you are inextricably connected to that child um so when you suddenly have to prove it when you have to make decisions that will risk their life when you have to sign consent forms that will risk their life um you trust the people who want to poison your child with a medicine that may or may not make them better um, you are not watching that. You are taking their life in your own hands and you are on that journey, you know, as part of them. You are their voice. Um, so often we might have been talked about Larson's treatment over the top of his head, you know. So a doctor will come and talk to me while Larson listens and then expect uh, me to translate that to him. And so, no, I was I was not a bystander in that in any way but I suppose just because I went through it in the ways that I've explained it doesn't detract from the horror that he actually faced all of those invasive procedures you know he's the one who had the neurosurgery and had his skull cut open he's the one who had his eye removed um so so no I wasn't a bystander but certainly he was the one who kind of experienced the absolute physical horror of the treatment that he faced um and I think this is where this is for me where radiotherapy was so positive um because i felt like there was this opportunity for the therapeutic radiographers to speak to larson because it was just slightly different to the other parts of the treatment where we were being delivered you know constant bad news actually but test results and things that might come to me to be explained to him with the process of radiotherapy, once you kind of learn what you need to do each day in treatment, you can get into that. And so people didn't need to explain something new to me every single day. There were bits of information that came, you know, throughout. But actually, on the whole, um, Larson could go in and he could be greeted directly. They would talk to him about, OK, get up, get up onto the bed now or lie down. And I didn't need to be involved in that process. Um, I could be a bystander and you know what that was that was the brilliant part of radiotherapy I felt like he was being treated by people who cared for him and who wanted to involve him in his own care Um, and again had Larson needed a general anaesthetic or had that been pushed by his oncologist I would not have been able to do that I would have had to sign the consent forms every day I would have had to say I would have had to pin him down he wouldn't have wanted a general anaesthetic that would have been more traumatic for him than being having the mask clipped to the table um so yes I don't like the term bystander for most of his care but you know what there was an element of of radiotherapy where I did get to stand back and and allow him to just go through that process and be really well looked after and it sounds like you could really trust and put all of your faith in therapeutic radiographers 
Um, I'm sure Joe's been thinking this, Holly, but we are we have a bit of a retention recruitment crisis in therapeutic radiography. Do you want to come and join up and be a therapeutic radiographer? It sounds like you've got the passion for it and you love us and you know you can say our title. <laughs> do you know, I don't know if my science or math skills are good You enough. don't need it. Like, it's physics. I didn't do physics at school and I'm in a physics job. <laughs> really? Okay. I said okay, Joe. You've got it. This is a binding contract. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know what your distance learning options are, but I'm in West Wales. Joe will come to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm. Do you know I'm really passionate, and and as much as that's uh, very kind of you to say, I um, that it's not about me. It's about the people who treated Larson, and they were amazing individuals. And I really, actually, it was one of them. It was Molly who had recommended Rad Chat, and that's how I found you in the first place. And, um, you know, it's her passion and she's listening to your podcast and she's painting the masks for these children. You know, I want everyone that you manage to recruit in your in your crisis of recruitment. I want them to be inspired by how Molly treated Larson and how, you know, the treatment centre at Nottingham managed him. And I think he was a bit of a one off, you know, the idea about general anaesthetic. That was their process. Um, and I... And I don't know whether processes have changed or developed, but I really hope that for the staff who treated Larson, that stayed in mind for children after him who were four or five um, to to manage it in a similar way, to manage it without general anaesthetic, to manage it with play and um, and to use the staff that they had um, who were just brilliant with children. Holly, we're coming towards the end. Um, I would like to know just what to what to look forward to from Larson's Pride charity for 2023 so for 2023 we are focusing on our radiotherapy project so we're a charity for children with brain tumors and it's not specifically radiotherapy but this year and um, and because of my experience that has been our first project so in 2023 we're really excited to announce that we have an animation that's been developed it features Larson and shows his journey through radiotherapy the animation has been created to support other children in talking about the opportunity for awake radiotherapy and what their experience might be if they don't have a general anaesthetic. The people they will meet, what it might feel like, the bits that are scary, um, what the machine might look like, um, all of those things. And we really hope that it will be used by people who listen to your podcast um, and for, for treatment centres in England and Wales and beyond um, who want to support children to access awake radiotherapy. Um, what else have we got? We're working with Nottingham and they are doing some lovely profile videos for us talking about the different roles of people um, working in therapeutic radiography so we've got the mask technician is uh, not keen but he's going to do a video for us um we've got the i would imagine holly that no one would ever say no to you <laughs> we um you know i'm trying especially if you're bringing cupcakes into the department yeah i did make sure i got the cupcakes in while we were having these conversations it was in october so it's the right time um we, yeah, so the mask technician, we've got the CT radiographer, I think, is going to be in that as for part of the planning video. Um, therapeutic radiographers, we've got the paediatric liaison radiographer um, and 
so hopefully that will be something that is really suitable for people who get treated in Nottingham. But these roles are relatively generic or, you know, treatment centres might be able to say, we've got someone who's called a different title, but they're going to fulfil this role for you. And again, the point of these videos is that there'll be real faces. So they'll be suitable for parents and carers to look at as well. Um, so just familiarising you with the process, familiarising you if you have to go to a different treatment centre for radiotherapy, which I think happens quite a lot, that you're outside of your ward or where your other bits of treatment have been. Um, and after those are produced and released, hopefully early 2023, we'll get all of that out. Um, I'm working with our place specialist to offer you, and please come back to us, any kinds of CPD for your um, students or any departments where they'd like some play techniques or strategies or to hear more about my story, um, to kind of support them with, with developing as practitioners in terms of paediatrics. Wow, Holly, that sounds absolutely amazing. And yeah, absolutely. Once this uh, episode comes out, we'll link everything um, that's available. And I'm sure lots of therapeutic radiographers and and students um, in various guises will be really, really interested. I just want to ask one thing. I know we're getting to the end and we keep saying that. Just one last question. Um, But um, you put out on Instagram a question around what did people refer to radiotherapy as for paediatric patients specifically? And I just thought it was really, really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about what the results revealed? Yes. Um, so we we had a survey that asked a lot of different questions and we had really varied responses. Um, so we had some zapping, but then we had some people saying that they would never say zapping because zapping might be a little bit scary. Um, we said we had some people saying um, medicine, actually, which I hadn't considered because medicine for me is liquid, <laughs> you know, but talking about that. Um, what else did we have? I thought we might have had laser, but I don't think we had laser. So maybe people felt that was a bit too aggressive as well. The the key um response for you here is that people were really worried about scaring children with how they described it um I thought medicine actually in the end whilst whilst it was a new term to me was maybe the one that I would have used um but it might be that you find out what the term is from the child you know they might describe it back to you um and you kind of learn some terms from them and work with the parents might already be using a term but it was really varied I don't think there's any wrong way of saying it. You kind of judge it with the child. But yeah, zapping, I think, came up the most. (laughs) Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. So, Holly, we end all of our podcast episodes with a top tips. And I know um, I've certainly learned little things that you've been saying as you've gone through. Is there anything you'd like to leave listeners with? Yes, I, I think that I want to... Um, inspire and empower every therapeutic radiographer to know and to understand the this privilege they have in working in paediatrics and and especially with children with brain tumors who have such a dire prognosis the way you treat that child will give them additional minutes of happiness or it will give them additional hours at home or at school 
So anything you can do to support that child to have a positive treatment journey through radiotherapy, you will bring so much to their life because so much of the rest of the treatment has been absolutely awful. So my top tip is you have this power. <laughs> it sounds dramatic, but you have this power to have this massive human impact. And um, I would just like anyone who's listened to this podcast to go away and use that power with children to make sure that they have the best experience the most out of their life while they're going through this part of the treatment and you will never know the impact that you've had but I can assure you it will be massive oh thank you so much honestly I've I've still got a lump in my throat um and you know for anyone listening I'm sure they'll have been emotionally triggered by what you've said so thank you so much Holly um for going through all that you've been through and sharing it with everyone so thank you for listening to Rad Chat your host today have been me Joe McNamara and Numb and Jock Anderson if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature we've discussed to receive your CPD certificate please complete the Google form linked with the podcast our next guest to feature will be Danny Hutton who will be discussing his role as the North West England ODN Manager 